Prayer can be awkward, can't it? Prayer can be a little bit awkward, especially if you didn't grow up in a home where prayer was modeled or you simply haven't had um, somebody come alongside of you and, and teach you how to pray. Perhaps the best dis- depiction of the awkwardness of prayer was in a movie that came out 23 years ago entitled Meet the Parents. How many of you have seen that movie? Okay, I realized when I said 23 years ago, that means all our college students in the room hadn't been born yet. And it made me feel really, really old because I was like, yeah, meet the parents. Everybody knows that movie. Well, in one of the early scenes in the movie, the main character, played by Ben Stiller, um, is, uh, who, who plays a um, nurse from Chicago named Greg Falker, who plans to propose to his fiance while on a weekend trip to visit his future in-laws in Long Island at their home. And um, his fiance's dad is played by Robert De Niro. Um, and Robert De Niro, right before the meal starts, says, Greg, would you like to say grace? And Greg, being Jewish, um, didn't know quite what to do with that. Um, probably just culturally Jewish, not religiously Jewish. Um, and awkwardness ensues as Greg begins to fumble over words, um, says, well, yes, of course, of course, Jewish people pray. And, um, revealing the fact he had probably never prayed out loud a day in his life. And he says this, oh, dear God, thank you. You are such a good God to us, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, oh, sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day, day by day, by day, oh dear Lord. And then he remembers a song that was playing on the radio in the previous scene, a little Easter egg in case you hadn't noticed this before. Oh dear Lord, three things we pray, to love thee more dearly, to see thee more clearly, to follow thee more nearly day by day. By day. Amen. Prayer can be awkward. And if you find prayer difficult, my pastoral prayer for you today is that as we sit at the feet of our rabbi Jesus, you'll become more confident in approaching the God of the universe in prayer as Jesus teaches us how to pray. You know, learning how to pray is a very important aspect of apprenticing the way of Jesus. In fact, I mentioned last week that the only thing the disciples ever asked Jesus to teach them to do was how to pray. Probably because every time that he went missing, they didn't know where he was. They turned around. What did they find him doing? Praying. Where's Jesus? I don't know. I haven't seen him. Oh, he's over there. Pray. Evidently, they saw him praying so much, they wanted to learn more about it. And as we continue our sermon series through the Sermon on the Mount, we come to the section of the sermon where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. 
We took a dive into the first half of this prayer last week. And so those of you who were here last week, let me see a show of hands. Who was here last week? Okay. About 50% of you. I need your help. Okay. Um, What was the big idea of last week's message? Who can remember? Shout it out. One person remembered, okay, yes. You know, it's times like this that I'm humbled as a pastor that not many of you really actually listen to me. But um, let's all say that together. Here it goes. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. I pointed out last week that every single phrase of the Lord's Prayer points us to our desperate need of Jesus. Every single phrase. Only in Jesus can we truly address God as our Father in heaven. Why? Because in Jesus, orphans become children. Only in Jesus can we truly hallow God's name because in Jesus, commoners become what? Priests. Only in Jesus can we truly pray for his kingdom to come because in Jesus, what is it? Foreigners become citizens. We have a slide for that, I think. Is there a next one? There it is. Let's say these together. In Jesus, orphans become children, commoners become priests, foreigners become citizens. Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. So if you missed last week, there, you got a quick summary of it in two minutes. Last week, I gave you a teaser about today's message and pointed out that the Lord's Prayer can be divided into two parts. The first half contains declarations spoken to God. The second half contains petitions that we ask of God. And the petitions that we're going to study today in the second half of the Lord's Prayer hinge directly and flowed out of the declarations in the first half of the prayer. That being said, let's dive into our text together today, starting with Matthew chapter 6 and verse 11. Give us this day our daily bread. Okay, time out. Let's stop right there and look at this first request. This first petition in Jesus' example, prayer. And on the surface of things, it looks straightforward enough. Dear God, give us food for today. And this would make sense based on the audience that Jesus was talking to. Keep in mind, this is first century Jewish culture, which was a society of subsistence living. 85% of one's income in that day was spent on what? Food. 85%. They got daily wages and they bought daily food. And the main staple of their diet was what? Any guesses? Bread. What's for breakfast? Bread. What's for lunch? Bread. What's for dinner? Bread. Sure, they had other things to supplement their diet. You know, um, they had dried fish. On special occasions, they would have lamb or beef. But bread, day in and day out, was what sustained them. If they didn't have bread, they didn't have life. But what we can't see on the surface of what's translated for us here in English is the original Greek. And the original Greek, in this petition, Jesus does not actually say daily bread. That's a translator's choice of a very rare Greek word that's only found twice in all of our New Testament. And some commentators believe maybe Jesus made it up. Literally, Jesus is saying, give us this day our next day's 
bread, our next day's bread, or tomorrow's bread. But since early translations into English translate it as daily bread, none of the later translations have been brave enough to actually change that, but they just put it as a footnote. Next day's bread is what it quite literally means. Well, what's, what's significant about this phrasing? Next day's bread. I'm glad you asked. Let me tell you. Um, if you were a first century Jew, hearing Jesus say next day's bread, your mind would immediately know what he was talking about because you knew your Old Testament. Your mind would have immediately gone back to Exodus chapter 16, which tells the story of God providing what? Manna in the wilderness for the Israelite people to eat right after he delivered them from slavery in Egypt. There was no food in the wilderness, hence the name wilderness. And so day by day, each day, he, God would provide bread from heaven. Manna. Every morning, the Israelite people would wake up and they would go out in the morning. They would find these wafer-like cracker things. Manna literally means what is it? Um, they would find all this what is it scattered all over the ground. And God told them, he instructed them, collect exactly what you need for this day only. And like most humans, the Israelites listened to God, but didn't listen to God, if you know what I mean. And early on, they would do what? They were like, oh, we need to collect a little bit extra just in case. Well, what would happen at night to the extra? It would spoil. They'd wake up the next morning if they had collected more than they actually needed, and it would be full of maggots. It would be rotten. But there's one exception to this rule. And that was on Fridays. See, Sabbath was a special day for the Israelite people. It's the day that God set aside for them to do what? Rest. To do nothing. And so he said, you can collect a double portion on Friday, and I promise you that come Saturday morning, that won't spoil. Every other day it will, but if you collect twice as much as you need on Friday, or for Friday, enough for the Sabbath as well, it won't spoil. I will keep it. I promise that. And so it wouldn't rot overnight. God kept his promise to preserve their Sabbath bread and to meet their needs, to preserve their next day's bread every single time. And so on Fridays, God would give the Israelites their next day's bread. So the Israelites, not only in the, in the wilderness, they not only had to trust in the provision of God for their daily manna, their daily bread, but every Friday they had to go beyond trusting in the provision of God. They also had to trust in what? They had to trust in the promise of God as well. The promise that the next day's bread would not turn into maggots like it did every other day. That it would be good to eat on the Sabbath. Think about this. On the Sabbath... The Israelites were absolutely helpless to do anything and to, to, to take care of their needs. They couldn't do anything. They had to trust God alone that he would provide according to his promise. As they did what? Nothing. As they rested. And God provided every single time. 
So what's behind this instruction of Jesus here when he tells us to ask our Heavenly Father for our next day's bread? He's teaching us not only to bring our daily needs to our Father, but at the same time, he's teaching us to trust. To trust in what? To rest in what? The promises of God. That's the main point of the Sabbath, to rest. To rest in the promise that he will never leave us or forsake us. To rest in the promise that he is for us, not against us. To rest in the promise that we are no longer orphans, but we're adopted children of a heavenly father. And we don't need to fend for ourselves. To rest in the promise that God has us right where he wants us. And there is no circumstance in our lives, no matter how difficult, that hasn't first passed through the screen of his sovereignty and will ultimately be woven together in his master plan for his glory and our good. Do you believe that? For God works for the good of those who call, who love him and are called according to his purpose. But my friends, it's so hard to rest in the promises of God, isn't it? Especially when life isn't going well. When life doesn't go how we expect it, what do we do? Do we rest? No. <laughs> what do we do? I know what I do. I get anxious. I start to worry. I get fearful. My tendency is to do the opposite of rest. And then doubt begins to creep in. Maybe God is holding out on me. Maybe God really isn't good. Maybe God really isn't in total control of my circumstances. Have you ever been there? <laughs> because if he were, then I'd have a better job. If he were, then I'd have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. If he were, then I'd have this or that. And we begin to worry and become anxious and go, okay, I, God's holding out on me, so I better take care of this myself. And life always goes sideways when we do that. We anxiously take matters into our own hands instead of God, trusting in God's provision and promise. But Jesus is teaching here, God's got this. God's got this. You can fully trust not only in his daily provision, you can trust for him to provide next day's bread. You can trust in his promises as you rest, as you rest. God knows where, he are, where, where you are. He's good. He's a good, good father. You can trust him. So if you've prayed for something, even over and over and over again, and our heavenly father has not provided that for you, guess what? Is he being sadistic? Is he holding out on you? Is he some kind of evil guy up in the sky that doesn't want you to be happy? No, no. He is a good, good father. And you are loved by him intimately. He's with you. He's for you. He's not being sadistic. He knows exactly what you need and exactly when you need it. And he knows that above anything else that you ask for, you need him to be with you. And if whatever he is withholding is causing you to grow in your dependence upon him, it is for your good. It is for your good. He can be trusted. He's our father 
in heaven. You know, this is why Jesus encourages us to declare things about God before he teaches us to ask things from God. And what's the first line of the Lord's prayer? Say it with me. Our Father in heaven. In Jesus, orphans become children of the God of the universe. So my friends, we don't need to fend for ourselves. We can rest and trust in his provision. If you're a father here this morning, you know when you held that first baby in your arms, the overwhelming sense, at least I had it, it just it wept, it swept over me like a wave, this overwhelming sense to provide for and care and protect this little child. If I feel that, and I'm an imperfect father, how much more does your father in heaven feel that about you? About you. You are an adopted child of the God of the universe. And he loves you more than you can imagine. Our father in heaven, give us this day our next day's bread. We trust you. Okay, let's move on to the next petition in verse 12. Give us this day our next day's bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Forgive us our debts is the next petition. And this is interesting language, isn't it? It's financial language. And we can intuitively grasp right from the get-go, this, this isn't ultimately about money, is it? It's not about a, a financial debt. It's about a debt of sin. But why this imagery? Well, one way to think about this is that sin is always a failure to give somebody what is due them. And if God is our creator, our sustainer, and the giver of all good things, then we owe him a great deal of things that are rightfully due him. We owe him gratitude, love, respect, worship, honor, devotion, trust, obedience, right? And when we fail to give God his due, then we are indebted to him. And this prayer assumes that you and I have racked up such an enormous debt that we can never pay it off. We can never work it off. Our only hope is to ask for our debt to be forgiven. The interest accruing is greater than our payments. It's beyond what we can pay. There's a parable Jesus tells about this. And it's interesting to do the math in that parable where um, in the parable, the, the master forgives a servant of this astronomical debt. I mean, it would have been taken over 200 lifetimes to pay it off, okay? That's what, what the picture is here. Forgive us our debts. You know, we can't pay these off, so we have to ask God to forgive him, forgive them. Jesus doesn't encourage us to try to work them off in some form or fashion. He knows that's a useless um, attempt. But we know how this works from other passages like 1 John 1, 9, which tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I've highlighted two words on that slide. What are they? Faithful and just. He's faithful to do it. Why? Because he always will. That means he always will do it. And he's just or fair in doing it. How? Because the debt has already been paid in full. By who? Jesus. 
Jesus lived the perfect life that we couldn't live and died the death we should have died in our place and for the forgiveness of our sins. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we owed a debt we could never pay, Jesus paid a debt he never owed. Jesus died in our place for our sake, the righteous for the unrighteous, to reconcile us to God. My friends, apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. God, forgive us our debts. But that's not where verse 12 ends. It goes on to say what? And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The words of C.S. Lewis ring in my head here. Everyone thinks forgiveness is a lovely idea until he has something to forgive. Receiving forgiveness is, is, a, is wonderful, it's easy. Extending it to others who haven't given us our due is a different story, right? But Jesus is teaching here that there's a connection between forgiveness received and forgiveness extended. He expands on this connection in verses 14 through 15. Let's read that together. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Does that make you squirm a little bit? It does me. But I think it's intentional. intentional. Verses like this mess with us, don't they? They're unnerving, disquieting. They rattle us a bit. But, but I think Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He wants to, to, to bump us off balance a little bit. He wants to make us think about it, chew on it. What is the connection between forgiveness received and forgiveness extended? You know, on the surface of things, it sounds like Jesus is saying that, that the connection is cause and effect. It's causation connection. That God forgives because we forgive others. That his forgiveness depends on our forgiveness. And it's up to us to earn God's forgiveness. How? By forgiving other people. That's kind of what it sounds like, doesn't it? When you read this verse, devoid of any context of the rest of Scripture. But is that the gospel? Please tell me you know the answer. <laughs> but is that the gospel? That let me. To, it's up to us to earn God's forgiveness. Is that the gospel? Say that louder, please. No, no, it's not. That's salvation by works. That's earning forgiveness by what we do. That's a denial of the gospel and a contradiction to the overwhelming teaching of all of Scripture. The Bible is abundantly clear in places like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for it is by what? By grace you have been saved, not by works. It is the gift of God so that you don't boast. So if the connection between forgiveness that we receive and forgiveness that we extend cannot be causation, what is it? What is the connection between the two? I'd like to suggest that it's one of coordination rather than causation, okay? One of coordination, not causation. When it comes to forgiveness, receiving and extending go together. There's a coordination between them, kind of like inhaling and exhaling. They go together. You can't have one without the other. Go ahead and try it. Go ahead and inhale for me. 
Okay, stay that way for the rest of the message. For the next two minutes, we're going to be hearing. (laughs) Now they go together. You can't inhale without what? Exhaling. You can hold your breath for a little while, but it's inevitable. You're going to exhale. Forgiveness received or inhaled naturally and necessarily means forgiveness extended or exhaled, so to speak, to others. They're coordinating realities. Forgiven people become what? Forgiving people. Conversely, unforgiven people are usually what? Unforgiving people. When we truly receive God's forgiveness, it humbles us. It changes us. It rearranges things in our hearts. We become so overwhelmed by the grace that we've been given that it begins to overflow and extend to the lives of people around us. And we become conduits of forgiveness. My friends, an unforgiving spirit always betrays a heart that's still full of pride. A heart that hasn't been humbled by receiving forgiveness. A heart that has never truly inhaled the grace of God. A heart that self-righteously looks down on others and stands in judgment over the people that it's mad at. Why? Because a heart like this feels morally superior. I'm better than they are. They're the problem, not me. Unforgiveness comes from self-righteous pride. That's what's at the root. Self-righteous pride, what's the fruit? Unforgiveness. And self-righteous pride simply can't grow in a heart that's overwhelmed by the grace of God. It just doesn't belong there. It's incompatible with forgiveness that we've received and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Forgiven people become forgiving people. The relationship is one of coordination, not causation. And forgive us our debts, inhale, as we also forgive our debtors, the exhale. Now, how does this relate back to the second phrase in the Lord's Prayer? Hallowed be your name. Remember the hinge that I pointed out, the connection? Well, by encouraging us to declare, hallowed be your name, Jesus is inviting us, like I said last week, become participants in hallowing it. In other words, Jesus is, in Jesus, not only do orphans become children, but commoners become priests, because it's a priestly prerogative to be the stewards, to hallow God's name, to be the stewards of his holiness and his reputation on earth. Priests are representatives of God on earth, and the, what is, think about this with me, what is the best way to represent God on earth? By reflecting what? His character, right? There's nothing more godlike than forgiveness. Do you see the connection? When God gave his statement of self-revelation to Moses, he described himself like this in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, praying, hallowed be your name should remind us what that name is like. The Lord, the Lord, 
a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, plain and simple. God is a forgiving God. So his representatives on earth must also be what? Forgiving people, right? Praying hallowed be your name is our reminder that in Jesus, we commoners have become priests, stewards of the reputation of God where we live, work, learn, and play, stewards of the holiness of God, putting it on display for all to see. And we now must follow in the footsteps of our high priest, Jesus, who while he was on the cross said what? What was his prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Hallowed be your name. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. They go together. Okay, in the short time that we have left, let's quickly look at the last and third petition in verse 13. Say this one out loud with me. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You know, the Greek, this is another one of those instances where um, modern translations don't want to tinker with the good old King James Version that, that set the, the, the foundation for English versions yet for, for decades to come, or centuries to come. Um, Probably a better translation would be, lead us not into testing or trials. Uh, the Greek word behind that word that's translated in English, temptation, probably because of the previous context of forgive us our debts and sin being in the context. Um, that's probably why the translators chose to translate this word as temptation. But the Greek word parasmos literally just means testing. Lead us not into testing. It's generally translated as either trial or temptation in our English translations, depending on the context. For instance, it's the same Greek word that's found in 1 Peter 4.12, where the apostle Peter is writing to Christians who are undergoing severe persecutions, and he says this, do not be surprised at the fiery trial, parasmos, that you are undergoing as though something strange were happening to you. Although it's a word that's traditionally been translated for us as temptation here in the Lord's Prayer, its meaning is broader, I think. It's broader than just a temptation to sin. It's any test that might cause you to doubt the goodness of God. Could that be temptation? Yes. But it could also be difficulties in life. God, lead us not into a a test that would cause us to doubt your goodness. That's the heart of this prayer. In other words, it's okay to ask God for smooth sailing. It is. Jesus encourages us here to pray for it. And he also modeled it for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, take this cup of suffering from me. But he followed it up with what? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. We shouldn't be sadistic Christians praying for God to make our lives miserable. No. We shouldn't pray for difficulties to come upon us in life, but when they do inevitably come, we should also place ourselves in God's hands, knowing and trusting that he's going to preserve us through those difficulties. And that's the last phrase. 
of the Lord's Prayer. What is it? Say that last phrase. But deliver us from evil. But deliver us from evil. Lead us not into testing, but when it comes, would you deliver us from evil, God? Would you please preserve us through it? My friends, testing will come. Trials will come. Temptation to turn our back on God and fend for ourselves will come. We live in a broken world where evil and the evil one who perpetuates evil is temporarily given free reign. So newsflash, following Jesus will not make your life easy. It's not a free pass to easy street. If you signed up to, to be a Christian because you thought it would make your life better, I've got bad news for you this morning. Christians will still get sick. Christians will still suffer from injustice. As Christians, we still have horrible things happen to us. In John 16, Jesus tells us, expect it. In this world, you will have trouble. What's the next phrase, though? But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is why the petition, lead us not into temptation or testing, but deliver us from evil, is predicated by the declaration. What was the declaration? The third declaration up top? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In Christ, foreigners like you and me have become citizens in the kingdom of God. We know what's coming. We know, we know the brokenness all around us in this world is temporary. We know that when the fiery trials hit our lives, we have a hope that goes beyond this life. And we can take heart because we know the one who has overcome the world. The one who has gone to prepare a place for us so that we might be where he is. When that new Jerusalem comes down from heaven as pictured in Revelation. And we will evermore be with the Lord who will banish all evil, all injustice, all brokenness, and will make all things new. We have hope. And Jesus is instructing us here, pray along those lines. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know the one who has promised to return and make all things new. Would you say this with me? Apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer. But in Jesus, we do. So if prayer is awkward for you, day by day by day, I encourage you to come back to this prayer this example prayer that Jesus gives his disciples. Because in it, he teaches us how to pray. My friends, pray like an adopted child of a heavenly father. God, would you please help me to trust in the promise of your provision? Our father in heaven, give us this day our daily bread. My friends, pray like a sanctified priest in the household of God. God, would you continue to give me the grace and forgiveness that I so desperately need so that I'm transformed from the inside out and become a conduit of that very same grace and forgiveness extended to others. 
as I represent you on earth. Hallowed be your name. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Pray like an adopted child. Pray like a sanctified priest. Pray like an included citizen of the kingdom of God. God, would you protect us from the brokenness that's all around us? But when the evil in this world does impact our lives, would you preserve us with the wonderful knowledge that King Jesus has overcome it and he will one day return to make all things new. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lead us not into testing, but deliver us from evil. As we close and the worship team makes their way back to stage, would you stand with me? Stand with me. And let's pray this prayer together from our hearts. Pray this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which is really the disciples' prayer because he gave it to us to pray. Let's pray this out loud together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. As the worship team leads us, in a couple songs that are going to remind us of what Jesus has done for us, we're going to close our time together by coming to the Lord's table. The elements at this table remind us of the fact that apart from Jesus, we don't have a prayer, but in Jesus, we do. On the night before he went to the cross, Jesus celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, and he reinterpreted two elements of that meal, the bread and the cup. And as he broke the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. They wouldn't know at that point what he meant. They would know it in spades the next day. And he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Drink it in remembrance of me. And I'm not going to drink it again until I come in my kingdom. They had no clue what he meant, but they would know the next day, and particularly on the third day. And so for centuries, Christians have come to this table to remind ourselves of the significance of what Jesus did in our place, on our behalf. So as we come, I invite you to humbly recognize your need for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Apart from him, say it with me, we don't have a prayer, but in him, we do. So come in groups of 10 to 12. When enough people have gathered, we'll lead you in communion and go back to your seats. The next group come and fill in after. Come to the table.